So grab your Bibles and open to Titus chapter two. Titus chapter two. If you got a Bible from an usher, that's page 1100. Titus chapter two. And while you're doing that, I, the last two weeks I was in Zambia, which is in South Central Africa. And I got the chance to teach 160 plus pastors while I was there. They asked me to come teach the books of first, second and third John. So I did that over 18 messages in five days. And so they're like, oh, how are you doing after your break? No, there was no break. There's no break at all during those that week, but it was incredible. And I, I just want to bring you a message from them. They wanted me to say this to my, my wife and kids and say it to you. Thank you for allowing me to come do that. They were uh, incredibly blessed and wanted to let you know how, how grateful they were. So Titus chapter two, starting in verse 11, if you are able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Titus 2.11, this is God's word for us this morning. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is God's word. You may be seated. As you are, join me in prayer one more time. God, what an incredible passage. And though there are all kinds of things that are said in these verses, the, the key point that we're going to look at today is right there at the very beginning. Grace. So I pray that you would help us to, to understand your grace, help us even to experience your grace through the preaching of your word. Use this time, please, to, to, to deepen our understanding, to deepen our, our love for you because of your grace. And I don't just pray that for us. Typically, I'll pray for another church, but as my heart is still full from Zambia, I pray for the pastors that were there. Pastors from all over Africa, really, who descended on this little school in Zambia to hear your word and then are out in there. They've, they've already preached today. It's already the middle of the night there. But, but God, I pray that you would use your truth to be a light in the darkness in Africa. So much false religion there has been, has been so, so powerful there. And yet, God, your word is more powerful. Your grace is more powerful. So I pray that the, the light coming from pastors like those men would, would outshine the darkness there in Africa and that you would do the same here in our church. I pray the same exact thing for them that I pray for us. Use your word this morning to bring light and truth for the glory of your name. Amen. So there's a story told of C.S. Lewis who um, was walking down the halls of one of, his, uh, one of the universities there and he heard a commotion in one of the rooms. There was a bantering back and forth. And he could hear it through the walls and so he, he opened the door to find a bunch of scholars arguing. And so he calmed them down a bit and he said, hey, what are you guys talking about? What's, what, what are you, what's, so, uh, what's so crazy? And, he, and they said, hey, we're, we're debating what it is that makes Christianity distinct from other religions. And he heard that, heard that and he replied, well, that's easy. It's, well, let me ask you, how would you answer that question? What is it that makes Christianity distinct? Is it, is it distinct or is it like every other religion or worldview on this planet? How would you answer their question? Do you, how would you say, this is what makes Christianity distinct? Well, Lewis said just one word. He just goes, that's easy. It's grace. Amen. Grace. I, 
Is that kind of a letdown saying that word, grace? Maybe the answer should be more profound. Maybe there should have been more of an aha or an oh yeah or a hush or a that's right, grace. I think we'd never say it, but, but I mean, grace is amazing, right? But so are people and food and sports teams and music, right? We use that word for, for all of those things too. So let me ask a different question. Do, do fish know they're wet? Oh, you're like, oh, it's going to be one of those messages today. No, seriously. Think about it. They breathe it. They swim in it. They're born, they born, live, and they die in it. They don't appreciate water until when? Until it's gone. I think the same is true for us. We are born, we live, we die in grace. All we experience is grace. We are constantly recipients of grace. And I don't think we really appreciate it until we, we hear about it being taken away. So I want to start us in a passage like that this morning. So turn to Leviticus chapter 10. Keep your finger here, your little ribbon in Titus chapter 2, and turn to Leviticus chapter 10. That's the third book of the Bible. So if you get to Genesis or Exodus, you've gone too far. So make a right and go back to Leviticus chapter 10. If you're reading through the Bible with us in a year, then the Bible reading plan tomorrow will be in Leviticus chapter 10. So we're getting kind of a head start on it right now. Leviticus 10 is the story of Nadab and Abihu, at least the end of their story. They were the sons of Aaron and they helped Aaron do his job as the high priest. So let's take a look at them in in chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Okay, so God is clear, Exodus 30, what should and should not be burned before the Lord. And so here they are, they're not stealing gold from the temple, they're not defiling the tabernacle with, uh, with prostitutes, they're not sacrificing human beings. They're disobeying for sure, no doubt, obviously, but they're just switching up the incense recipe. Add a little bit, take out of that, you know, it's, it's no big deal, right? And well, what, what, I mean, what could possibly happen? Verse 2. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Wait, what? Huh? Like, no slap on the wrist? I mean, he could have made them blind, right? He could have, like, you know, the voice could have come from heaven, hey, I saw what you did, don't do that again. But no, there's one sin, one little crossing of the line, one, one, one little crossing of one little line, one act of defiance, and God violently kills them with a ball of fire, no less. And just in case we think that's Old Testament, don't forget Acts chapter five, God did the same thing to Ananias and Sapphira. All they did was secretly refuse to, to uh, support the church financially, though they promised to do that. And uh, yeah, same thing, instant death. Swift, violent, final, unmistakable judgment for one sin. And aren't we tempted to scream, that's not what? It's not fair, but you kind of hesitate to say that, right? Because you know I'm going to spring a trap on you, (laughs) right? But in that moment, when we want to scream, wait a minute, that's too much. That's not fair. We are fish out of water. We're not, we've not only just lost our appreciation for grace, but we're forgetting about it, assuming it, taking it for granted, expecting it, and even demanding that God show grace. And the moment we do that, we forget very two, two very important truths. The first is that grace can never be demanded. And the second is that grace could never be demanded by people like us who deserve the opposite of grace. Now we're going to work our way through Titus chapter 2. So take a look at that. Turn back to Titus chapter 2. 
we're going to, what I want you to see before we jump into the text is that verses 11 to 14, there are no periods. Did you see that? This is one long sentence from verse 11 to verse 14. But I want you to see the subject of the sentence. The, the thing that controls everything else in the sentence is the word grace. So today our text will show us that, that the result of grace in our lives. This, this is what it will look like to experience grace. What happens when a person experiences God's grace? What happens when God's grace appears to them in the language of verse 11? And in particular, the grace that we'll look at today is the grace of salvation. Now, as soon as I say the word salvation, you see it in verse 11, that word is like an iceberg. Okay, you, you, think you, you think you got it, right? It means deliverance, it means salvation, it means rescue, but surface, you start digging and there's layers and layers and subtopics and six, seven, eight layers deep when it comes to the word salvation. Salvation is a massive subject. And, and you see it there in verse 11, the summary word salvation, but there's so much here, we're not going to go into everything that that word means, but, but that's okay, because I've got you covered. On our website, on our YouTube page, you can go and find a 10-part series that I did on salvation. It looks like this. You can go on our YouTube, look for this. There's 10-part series on this subject of salvation from the Bible. And even that, to be honest, is just scratching the surface. Each one of these messages could be 10 messages. But for us today, we're just going to look at verse 11, the big picture. Now, the second thing I want you to see, let's kind of let's just walk through this verse, verse 11, for a second. And let me ask you this question. Um, before salvation, there was what? Look at the text. Before salvation, there was grace. Grace appeared, bringing salvation. Grace is the fountain. Salvation and its many streams flow out of grace. The Christian understanding of salvation does not exist. There's no chance for it. It doesn't make any sense unless there is previously a God of grace. So what is grace? In Greek, the word translated grace just means favor. It's an act of kindness or approval or support for someone or something. And in, in Greek religion, what would happen is that you would, you would want grace from the gods. You would want favor from the gods. So you would do things. You would jump through some religious hoops. You would give. You'd sacrifice. You'd, you'd do whatever the gods told you to do in the hopes that they would be favorable towards you. Well, the New Testament writers take the word favor, but they combine it with the God of the Bible. And when you put those two things together, what they created was something unimaginable, unbelievable. So what is grace? Well, the first thing we need to understand about grace, you can see it in verse 11, is that grace is divine. Notice the phrase in verse 11, the grace of God. In other words, grace is God's favor. It's God's kindness. But unlike Greek religion, is, it is God's favor to those who don't deserve it. It's favor that is not earned, that cannot be earned, that cannot be warranted, that cannot be merited, meaning that God's favor isn't something that you or I could ever be good enough to get. Listen to Romans 4.4. 4. It says, quote, to the one who works, the one who's trying to earn God's favor, his wages are not counted as a gift because but as what he is due. In other words, when, when you got a paycheck or when you get a paycheck or someday when you get a paycheck, it's not going to be a gift. It's going to be something what? That you were owed for the work that you did. Well, the work that we've done, according to the Bible, is our sin. 
And so what we earn with our sin is, is not grace. What we earn with our sin is death and hell. Romans eleven six puts it this way, quote, if salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You cannot earn grace. Grace is unearnable. God's grace is a gift to be received, not a wage to be owed. In fact, Galatians 5, 4 says that to seek God's acceptance by your good works is to fall from grace. It's to remove yourself from the shower of grace. Romans 6.23 says that what we're owed for our sins, the paycheck for our sins is death, physical, spiritual, eternal death for our sins. However, the sentence doesn't end there. The wages for sin is death, Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God. And that word free gift in Greek is the same word for us here, grace. The grace gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So if we're going to understand grace, if we're going to go beyond understanding grace to experiencing grace, then point number one, we need to recognize the unlikeliness of grace. Recognize the unlikeliness of grace. After all that, do you see how unlikely grace actually is? How unexpected, how unrealistic experiencing grace is? If you don't, well, let me, let me kind of drill down into that a little bit. It's unlikely because we don't deserve it. We, we don't deserve it because we've all done a whole lot of sinning. And if we're honest, we continue to do a whole lot of sinning. I mean, think about it. How unlikely is it for a judge, let alone a perfect judge, a judge who only does what is right, how unlikely is it that a judge like that, let alone a, a wicked judge or just a, a normal judge like ours, how unlikely is it that they would let a criminal go free without a bribe? without a threat. How unlikely is it for your bank to forgive your mortgage? You say, oh, that happens all the time. No, it never happens any of the time, right? Those things never happen. The word unlikely doesn't even begin to describe what something like that happening would be. Well, now let's multiply it. Now let's think about grace in light of who God is. He's holy, righteous, just, and good. If he's holy, he's sinless, he's perfect. He's righteous, meaning he only does what is right. He's, he's just, so he will only treat us according to what the law demands. And the punishment for sin is, is eternal death in the lake of fire. And if he's good, he must punish sin, right? Well, no, God is good. And that's when, when I, are you going to heaven? Well, well, yeah, of course I'm going to heaven because God is good and I'm good. And he just, you know, he's good. He's going to let me in. But what people fail to realize is that it is the goodness of God that will keep them out of heaven. Because God is good, what? He must punish sin. It's an evil judge that doesn't punish convicted criminals. The good judge punishes every convicted criminal because he's good. Everything God is shows us how unlikely grace actually is. Oh, and then couple that with everything we are. And grace is exponentially more unlikely, right? Because we're unholy. We're devoted to ourselves rather than God. We're unrighteous. We, do what's, we don't do what's right. We're unjust. We, we don't live according to God's standards. We live according to our own standards. And we're not good. Jesus in Luke eleven thirteen calls us all evil. Red letters, Jesus' words, evil. Well, that's encouraging, so let's pile on. Let's, let's look at some more. 
Ten Commandments. Let's think about that for a second. Let's compare our lives to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, we all failed right there, right? We disobey God ultimately because we are our own gods. We use money or God. We use people to serve us, to make us number one. We don't carve idols, but we bow down to modern idols like money or influence or power or respect or people's opinions of us or pleasure. We treat God like he's worthless. We don't hallow his name. We take his name in vain. We treat his reputation. We treat his person as beneath us. Notice all of that has to do with what we substitute for God. Like, like God, you're, you're great, but there's something more valuable. You're great, but there's something more wonderful than you, God. And so we worship the substitute instead of him. We incredibly devalue him who just happens to be the creator of the universe, the giver of life and the giver of everything good that we've ever had. And that's just the first three. When you compare all God is to how awfully we treat him, even after we are saved, grace is the last thing we should ever expect from him. I mean, let's be honest. It's hard to be honest in church, I know, but let's be honest. Would we show grace to anyone that treated us the way that we treat God? And recognize not only is God's grace unlikely for sinners like you and me, but the amount of grace we've been shown makes this even more unlikely. I mean, it's not just that we have a few tiny blemishes on an otherwise spotless record, right? Sin is any lack of conformity to God's word, God's will, or God's ways. Sin is, this includes any breaking of any law of God. Let that sink in. We don't need a couple drops of grace. We need an ocean of grace. An ocean of grace in response to the millions of sins that each of us has committed. And that is why Ephesians 1 and 2, you can read it later today when Paul is recounting all that God does to save us. Twice he talks about, quote, the riches of his grace. God is not a Scrooge. He's not monstrously with his grace. He's not sitting there going, I'm going to hold on to this as tightly as I can and I'll just sprinkle a little bit out for you. No, Ephesians 1.8, he lavishes his grace on people generously. It's you are standing under the Niagara Falls of grace and he is just pouring it down on you. Let the reality of grace humble you if you've experienced because there's really no good reason why we should have ever experienced grace. And if you haven't experienced it, then let God's grace melt your heart. He is willing to lavish grace on you. First Peter 5, 5, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let these truths humble your heart. This, because grace is unearnable. Grace is unlikely. It is highly, highly unlikely. But it's here. Because God is called the God of all grace. In light of all that, take a look at the text. The unlikely has happened. Look at the text. It's, look at it. It says that it, the grace of God has appeared. The unexpected, it's happened. The, the unlikely is, is here. God's grace has appeared. And that word appeared is, is the word used for the sunrise. The, the moment the light peaks up over the horizon and, and light begins to shine in the darkness. That's, that's this word. 
It's something invisible to our sight, but it becomes visible to our eyes. And it, it refers, this word is appeared. Notice the word, here's a little nerd moment for a second. The word appeared is in the past tense, which means it's completely finished. It's something that happened in the past. And this word, you can't see it in, in, in English, but this word means that, that grace didn't make itself appear, that grace is caused, some, somebody else caused grace to appear. Well, it, I don't know about you. When, when I read the Bible, I see something like that and I go, well, when did grace appear? When did that happen? Well, in a very real sense, once sin entered the world, grace appeared, right? It's just kept appearing ever since. It appeared to Adam and Eve. It appeared to Noah. It appeared to Abraham and his family who, who were idol worshipers. It appeared to the Israelites who God delivered from Egypt, who, by the way, were just as idolatrous as the Egyptians were. It appeared to David when God took him from being a, a shepherd to being the king over his people and, and then says to him, promises him, I'm going to make one of your descendants the king over the whole world. It appeared to the wicked Ninevites through the preaching of Jonah. It's appeared since Eden, but it especially appeared when? When Jesus was born. And when he taught and he lived and he loved and he performed miracles and he died and he rose again and ascended into heaven, all as a response to our sin, all as a result of God's grace. But I want you to look closer at Titus 2.11. Here's another nerd moment for us, okay? Verse 11 says, for the grace of God appeared. And then verse 12 says, training us. The idea here behind these words is that when, when God's grace appeared, it started training people. So the training started taking place when God's grace appeared to them personally. Okay, so I want you to see this in, in chapter three, verse four. Okay, so it says when, so we're talking about a time, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our savior, of God, our savior appeared. So in this moment when it appeared, what happened? He saved us. Do you see that? So the appearance of grace comes with salvation. Which means, I don't think Paul is talking about the first historical experience of grace in the garden. I, and I don't think he's talking about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, although all of those are grace appearing. What I think Paul is getting at in verse 11 is the same thing I think he's getting at in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, is this. The moment grace appears to people personally. The moment that they experience God's grace. And if that's true, then experience grace means point number two, you should ask, has God's grace appeared to me? Has God's grace appeared to me? Because it's one thing to hear about grace. It's another thing to understand grace. All of that's great, but it's another thing altogether to experience grace yourself. Have you? Paul describes this moment in 2 Corinthians chapter four. And what he does is he pictures Christians and he pictures non-Christians and they're blinded. They're, they can't see. And, and what they can't see is God. They can't see how wonderful he is. They can't see how glorious he is. They're blinded from that. They're in moral and spiritual darkness. They're kept from seeing the light of the gospel. They're kept from seeing the truth that will set them free. However, when God says to their hearts, like he did on the first day of creation, let light shine, of dark, shine out of darkness. When he says that to their souls, their souls are flooded with light. They're born again. They're made new creations. The eyes of their hearts are enlightened. Their spiritual eyes are open. So they turn from darkness to light. They're made alive in the words of Ephesians 2, 5. And finally, they understand what they couldn't understand before. That God is glorious. He's wonderful. He's amazing. 
And, and, and they see that when they see the greatness of all that Jesus is and all that Jesus did in the gospel. Has that happened to you? Has God's grace appeared to you? Are you born again? Are you a new creation? Is there an old you and a new you? Have the eyes of your heart been enlightened so that this Christianity thing, which once made no sense, now finally makes perfect sense? Did you once see the God of the Bible as nothing all that special? I just kind of grew up around this. I heard it my whole life. It's nothing really all that important. It's important, but it's not special. It doesn't grab a hold of my, my very soul. Going from that to he's the most wonderful, incredible, majestic, glorious, magnificent being imaginable because now you understand all that Jesus is and all that Jesus did. If so, just know none of that happened because of how much less sin you have than other people. It didn't happen because of your kindness or your goodness, because of how much, how many scriptures you memorized, how long you've been going to church. It didn't happen because of your generosity or your obedience. Grace is something that happens to you. And it only happens to you because God in his grace made his grace appear to you. He opened your eyes. He raised you from spiritual death. Because without his grace, you remain enslaved to sin, blind to the truth, blind and unaffected by the glory of God. So you hear all these things and you go, I don't get it. Now listen, if, if me describing all of that is hitting a little too close to home, listen to me. Pray the words of Psalm twenty-two, sixteen that says, turn to me and be gracious to me, O Lord. Because don't forget the throne of God has a name. Do you, do you know what the, the name of God's throne is? It is called the throne of grace. God himself in 1 Peter 5.10 is called the God of all grace. So he's not sitting there going, yeah, jump through some hoops and then I'll be nice to you. Hey, you better give more. You better serve more. You better do more. I'm, I'm not gonna show you any grace. I'm gonna hold on to this until you do everything I want you to do. Then I'll show you grace. That is not the God of the Bible. Out of the Bible says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest for your soul. Cry out to him. And what is the promise? You will receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. Hebrews 4, 16. Think about John, the John who wrote the gospel, who wrote the three letters, who wrote Revelation. John was Jesus' cousin and he was Jesus' best friend. At least that's what he calls himself in the gospel that he wrote. And as he's describing Jesus at the very opening of his gospel, he says this about Jesus, John 1, 14, that Jesus is full of grace. He's full of grace. He's overflowing with grace. There's, there's no cap on his grace. Romans 5, 20, where sin increased, what? Grace increases all the more. You can't outgrace Jesus. There's, there's nobody. And he's sitting there going, I lavish grace on those who come to me. I look back at Titus 2.11. If God's grace has appeared to you, then notice what else came with that. God's grace appeared bringing salvation. So if God's grace appears to you, you are saved. That word bringing that you see in the, in the text there is not actually in the text. So the sentence actually reads, the grace of God has appeared. Salvation for all people. Now, in thinking through that, I don't think this passage is saying, this passage means that salvation is available to all people or that it's offered to all people. And the reason I say that is because when the grace of God appears to a person, notice, 
salvation is experienced. So there is a power that comes with the grace and that power is the power to be saved. So I don't think this, is, this text is talking about what's possible. This is, actually, this is talking about what's actually experienced when God's grace appears to a person, salvation is experienced. So God's saving power is experienced when God's grace appears to someone, just like we saw, look back at 3-4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared, he saved us. Okay, so the appearance of grace comes with salvation. Salvation is produced when grace appears. So if verse 11 isn't talking about the potential for salvation, but it's talking about the actual experience of salvation, we'll look at the text. How can it legitimately be for all people? Like it says, if God's grace appears with saving power so that a person experiences salvation, which means salvation for all people cannot mean all people are saved. Is that what that means? That all people are actually saved? If the power comes with grace for all people, does that mean all people are saved? Well, all throughout the Bible, we see the answer to that would be no. There are many places in the Bible that teach that not everybody's going to be saved. That people reject the truth. They, they turn from the truth. They don't want anything to do with it. And there are no contradictions in the Bible. One pastor says everyone will be saved. Other ones that say they're not. No, no contradictions in the Bible. And another question too, look back at the text. So, the gospel hadn't reached to all people when Paul wrote this letter, right? So we can't be saying that all people are saved because they, all people hadn't heard about Jesus yet. Wait a minute, have all people heard about Jesus yet today? So how can salvation be said to be experienced by all people and yet not all people have experienced salvation? Are you like, why did you, I mean, do you really do this kind of thing? I walk you through that because I want you to understand the text. And this is what I think this text is saying. That salvation was then, and it is now, experienced by all kinds of people. That's what I think it's saying. And I want you to see this. Look back at the context. Verse 2. From verse 2 to verse 10, Paul is talking about kinds of people. Chapter 2, verse 2, older men. Chapter 2, verse 3, older women. Chapter 2, verse 4, younger women. Chapter 2, verse 6, younger men. Chapter 2, verse 9, bondservants. You see that over and over again. The context is kinds of people. So, the, so I think what Paul is saying in verse 11 is salvation experienced by men and women, young and old, rich and poor, slave and free. There's no ethnicity, there's no gender, there's no class, there's no age that's excluded. Everybody, Jew, non-Jew, that's all of us. Men, women, boys, girls, young, old, rich, poor, everyone can come, everyone can experience salvation. There's no special group that says this is where salvation is and everything goes from there. Or there's no group that's completely um, removed from that, like, ah, you didn't get the promises and so you don't get to be saved. No, all of us, every ethnicity, every man, woman, boy, girl, all the rich, all the poor, everyone, all the young, all the not so young, every kind of person can be saved because every kind of person needs what? Grace. Regardless of what group we're in, regardless of what group our culture tells us we are in, the thing that ties us all together is our need for grace because we have all sinned. There is no one righteous, not even one. All of us are in need of grace to rescue us from our sins. And if that's true, then experiencing grace means you should, point number three, realize grace rescues from what you deserve. Grace rescues from what you deserve. Every point has been bringing us down to this, this moment right here. Grace does not make good people better. 
And grace does not make better people their best. Grace keeps you from experiencing the wrath and punishment you deserve for your sins. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the sentence doesn't stop there. It keeps going and says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Ephesians 2 begins by saying, we are, quote, dead in our sins, following the course of this world. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy, not miserly in mercy, but what? Rich in mercy, made us alive by grace you've been saved so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. You can't take out a ruler. You can't take out a scale and measure God's grace. It is immeasurable. It is beyond anything you and I could possibly imagine. And I said earlier that grace can never be demanded. And I said earlier that we deserve the opposite of grace. Well, what is the opposite of grace? The opposite of grace is justice. Justice is conforming to a rule. It's treating someone according to the rule. So the idea here is, here's a crime. Did you commit it? If no, then you're treated a certain way. If yes, then you're treated a certain way. Justice is getting what is in line with the crime committed. It's getting what we deserve for our crimes and all of our sins are just happen to be crimes against the judge of all the earth. And that's Nadab and Abihu. They are examples of divine justice, God giving people what they deserve for their sins. But you say, wait a minute, what they deserve, that's, that's a bit harsh. Like they deserve to die bringing different incense into the tabernacle. That punishment doesn't fit the crime. That's unjust. They, they don't deserve that. Actually, Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul that sins shall die. Anybody commit a sin? One-tenth of you raised your hands. <laughs> See, because like grace, you know what we also swim in? Sin. Which means that sin is really not that big a deal to us. Well, the big ones are, but all the rest of them are like, oh, you know, God knows and, you know, we're not, nobody's perfect. Listen, sin is a massive deal to God though. Every single one of our sins is a capital crime. Every one. Every sin gets the death penalty. The paycheck, the wages for sin is death. Okay, okay, so all people die because all people sin, fine. But Nadab and Abihu, Ananias and Sapphira, they died instantly. They died on the spot. Harsh, like, come on. Really, though? Didn't God say instant death was the penalty for sin? Like, I don't know. Yeah, it, he did. Genesis two seventeen. In the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. The penalty for every sin, even the smallest sin, has been and always has been from the very beginning, instant death. And yet, God treats us with grace, which really makes no sense. Because if you think about sin, when we sin, aren't we saying to God, hey, you know what? Your rules don't apply to me. You're not the boss of me. I do whatever I want. I'm in charge here. God, you, you can't tell me what to do. I do. I'm the one in charge here. God, for, forget what you say. I don't even care what you say because I, I'm going to do what I say. I mean, aren't we saying when we sin, 
I'm the one true God and God cannot tell me what to do. And yet, the common everyday way that God treats you and me, rebels against him, is with grace. Every good thing you've ever experienced, every good thing you have ever had, came from him. James 1.17, he gives you life and breath and everything else. Grace for us is as common as water for fish. So when we read of people like Nadab and Abihu or Ananias and Sapphira who get instant final justice, we're shocked, we're offended and in disbelief, we say that's not fair. That's what they deserve for their sins. And listen, that's what we deserve for our sins. How quickly we forget that with our very first sin, we forfeited every right we had to life. Every single breath that we take here and not in hell is a gift of his grace. And I don't know about you, but I do not want God to ever be fair with me. Right? If we got justice, we'd all be in hell and that we're not there right now is an immeasurable gift of God's grace. But think about it. Just that we're not there right now is a gift of his grace. But then add Jesus to that and the amount of grace there is just unbelievable. It's an infinite experience of grace. However, when we forget that we deserve the opposite of grace, that we deserve justice, when we forget that, grace stops being amazing and it starts being demanded. Listen, there's not one person on this planet who deserves to go to heaven. And listen, if there were 10 people in this front row, there aren't, but if there were 10 people in the front row and God said, I'm gonna give the five people on my right justice, I'm gonna give the five people on my left grace, he will have done nothing wrong to the people who got justice because grace cannot be owed. The moment we start talking about what is owed, we have left the realm of grace. The amazing thing is not that he saves the guy on death row right before he dies, repents right before the lethal injection enters his body. The amazing thing is that God saves any of us. I saw this a lot in the classroom. I've been teaching the Bible now for 17 years. And in that time, I've had many hundreds of students. And in those 17 years, I've gone back and forth with dozens of them in the classroom, even people on the street over this question. Why doesn't God save everybody? Why doesn't he do that? Which you know is a veiled attack against God, right? It's really like, well, I would do that. And so since he's not doing that, what's wrong with him? I would do it. So I must be better than him. Over and over. Why doesn't God save everybody? In those 17 years, I've only had one student come to me after all the people have left, came to to my podium, tears in her eyes, why in the world would God save me? Why would he let me even hear the message, let alone understand it, let alone experience his grace? I don't get it. Listen, that's, she, she understood grace. She experienced grace. She understood that grace is God's favor in spite of what we deserve. We deserve endless wrath. He shows us endless grace, completely against all that we deserve. In fact, remember, for grace to be grace, we have no basis for demanding it. 
Grace is received. It's not demanded, own, or obligated, or it's not grace. And Jesus wanted us to understand this, so he told us a story. Matthew chapter 18. There's this king, and he forgives a servant 10,000 talents. Now we read that. We don't really know what that means, but I'm going to tell you what that means. 10,000 talents. Well, one talent is the equivalent of 20 years' wages. So take what you make in a year, multiply that by 20, and then multiply that by 10,000. That's how much this servant was in debt to that king. So the average income in Gilbert is around 95,000 a year. So 95,000 times 20 times 10,000 is $19 trillion. Listen, the GDP of America is $22 trillion. So one person having that much debt is just, that's just unthinkable. Who could have that much debt? But you know what's even more unthinkable than somebody having that much debt? The person that debt is owed to forgiving it all. Every last cent. Not only does Jesus' story, Matthew 18, show how unlikely grace is. I mean, don't we wish our banks would do that? But it makes it clear that grace could never be owed. Can you imagine that, that, that servant going into the king? You owe me debt forgiveness. I demand it right now. You give that to me. It's mine. I, I deserve it. You need, to give me, you need to forgive all my debt right now or you're unjust, you're unkind, you're unloving and uncompassionate. <laughs> we would go, that's insane. Yet just as insane as demanding that God be gracious to us. All the servant could do is receive the gift. He could never earn that. So how should we respond to the God of all grace when he has forgiven us far more than $19 trillion worth of sins? Oh, that's next week when we look at verse 12. But for now, how should you respond to the God of all grace who is willing to forgive you far more than $19 trillion worth of your sins? How does that happen for a person? Romans 5, 2 says that through Jesus, we gain access to God's grace. So here's God's grace. It's, it's in a room and we gain access to that grace. It says by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 says people are saved by grace through faith. I remember spending hours talking to a friend of mine who struggles with this idea. Can he, can he know that grace has appeared to him? Can he know that salvation has, has come to him? That he's not going to receive God's wrath, but he's going to receive God's grace. Did he have enough faith? Was his faith strong enough? Was it big enough? I talked to a lady this week in the hospital and this was her dilemma as she's facing death. Do I have enough faith? Is my faith strong enough? Well, what did Jesus say about that? All a person needs is how much faith? The size of what? Yeah, a little seed. Why is that? Why? Why? Because what saves is not the amount of your faith. And what saves is not the intensity of your faith. What saves is the object of your faith. Who or what it is you're trusting in to rescue you from what you deserve for your sins. So let me ask you, are you trusting in your resume of good works? I'm a good person. I've done a lot of good things in my life. I'm not like those other kids. I'm not like those other people. They're bad, I'm good. Are you trusting in church membership? Are you trusting in some organization or some prophet or some pope or some teacher? Or is all of your hope 
in life and in death in Jesus who did every single thing you could possibly ever need to be saved and then offers it to you as a gift for trusting in him. Based on what? Because he looked at you and was like, gosh, they're so beautiful, I gotta have them. They're so godly, they're so perfect, they're so nice. I I just gotta have them. Why would Jesus do all of that? It's based on pure, undeserved grace. God offers it. All you can do is receive it. You bring nothing but your sin debt to the bargaining table. And on the other side of the table is God. And he's got mercy. He's got forgiveness. He's got redemption and reconciliation and justification and sanctification and regeneration and adoption so that he will treat you as if you were Jesus. And he says, uh, you don't have much there. I got everything. You got nothing. Trade you. Who would walk away from that table and say, no, 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 I'm good. I'll keep my debt. Listen, faith isn't wishful thinking or believing something anyway that you know is false. Faith is trust in a savior that did it all for you. So what's your response gonna be? If you thinking about this and God's working in your heart, I wanna know about it. Just take out that connect card, fill it out, put talk to a pastor, become a Christian, whatever, and drop it in the giving boxes, please. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to help you think through this. For the rest, it's very easy. It's very easy to hear about grace and not be affected. To think that what's more important than grace is something else that's happening today or something that's happening on your phone right now. There's nothing greater, there's nothing more wonderful than a God who would trade all of your sin for perfection and acceptance and love and adoption and grace. Don't push that away. He says, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. Let's pray.